This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. Uh, not long ago, Don West and I uh, sat down with Steve Moses to talk about a wide range of topics relating to self-defense. And at the end of our conversation, we revisited a couple of cases that we've discussed in the past where the defenders had a history of conflict that came back and haunted them during their prosecutions. And I think it's a good point to hit that there are some people who are what I might call conflict magnets. They tend to seek out conflicts, or if nothing else, conflicts often tend to find them. So we'll talk about a couple of those cases, and we'll talk about the judgment and practice of conflict avoidance that can help concealed carriers look out for potential danger zones, uh, potential conflicts, and uh, avoid self-defense scenarios before they ever get started. So here's my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses. Thanks for listening. A final thing I wanted to talk to you guys about today, unless you have other topics, is we've talked a couple times about uh, Sherry McClatchkey in uh, Holly Springs, Mississippi, who had that encounter. She was a laundromat attendant, and the angry patron came out, and she had a defensive display that successfully resolved that confrontation without her being charged with anything. So as I write about these cases, I revisit them sometimes to see if anything's happened in the case. Is there any new article that I missed uh, in the past, and I discovered that uh, Sherry ran for Holly Springs City Council, and somewhere in the course of the campaign, in a parking lot, she had a encounter with her uh, opponent in the race that got into a shouting match that ended up with a fist fight, and Sherry McClatchy got punched in the face. They show her bruises on the news. She got she got beat pretty good and uh, if she were carrying at that point she had the amazing discretion to not use her firearm she's not facing any problems there but it occurred to me we talked about the finishing machine Daryl Strebent he had gotten in trouble for road rage incidents in the past he was subsequently arrested after he resolved the self-defense case and had served some time in jail we've got um Ronald Gasser, he was a guy who shot former Jets uh, NFL player Joe McKnight after a road rage incident in uh, outside of New Orleans. We find out that he had gotten into a fist fight at that very same intersection a couple of years before. We have uh, Michael Draca, who shot Marquise McLaughlin in the parking lot in a Clearwater convenience store over the handicapped parking spot, we find out that he had gotten into verbal altercations in that same parking lot in the past. Um, I'm sometimes not surprised that even, even in cases where we think that we can create a good 
self-defense argument for the defender that these are folks who they have a history of if not seeking out confrontation confrontation sure seems to find them in your training career steve have you encountered folks that you were concerned had that capacity for finding conflict oh uh, absolutely absolutely and you know if they discuss that with me I really, you know, go to some effort to try to dissuade them from acting upon, you know, their emotions in the future. I tell them that, hey, I understand uh, you have emotions, you have feelings, you can't eliminate them, but you don't have to act on them. And you need to understand that there may be that one time when you go ahead and you act upon it and circumstances that are beyond your immediate control uh, take over and you find yourself in a very, very uh, bad place. And so I think that's critically important to understand that if you've got a predisposition to doing that, especially now that you're armed, you need to stop that immediately. Don, have you, in your long and illustrious criminal defense career, have you found that people have patterns that repeat <laughs> if you have a client are you are you ever shocked to find out that they've had something in their past that resembled the issue that you're helping them with at that time oh sure i think that's the hardest thing isn't it to change it is yourself and you may not have had much ability to keep yourself from being like that i don't know how our personalities get defined. We it's the uh, you know the nature versus nurture. I I agree with Steve that a lot of times it's recognizing that you have a certain trait or propensity and then making special <clears throat> efforts to control it, to not act on it, to know that your initial reaction sometimes is not going to be the right one. But I think. Largely, if I'm going to find one common characteristic uh, that would help define a lot of my clients over the last 40 years, however they came to have it uh, is their own unique story, but it would be some impulse control problems. People that are unable to either process information appropriately, to maybe understand what other people's intentions are, and sometimes it's just a, a lack of regard for the rules of society, but usually it's those quick, quick temper guys, you know, ones that flare up, that um, are always looking for the confrontation because they think everyone is against them. Now, obviously that's general in pop psychology, but I can tell you that that kind of knee-jerk behavior get you crossways with the law um, pretty quickly when it comes to you know inner social interactions those are the guys that seem to either pick fights or wind up on the other end of one i do want to say this though since most of my since you asked me about professional career my professional career is not only of course dealing with my clients that have been charged with something uh, in large part of their own making some, not always, you know, sometimes there is that truly innocent person that just got picked out of a lineup incorrectly. But usually 
uh, it was of their own making. But I can tell you this, that in handling thousands of cases over the years in the Central Florida area in particularly, um, I see the same uh, cops over and over as well that have, in addition to the underlying basis for the arrest, whether it was a DUI or a shoplifting or who knows what, always seem to have a companion charge of resisting arrest with violence or opposing a police officer, battery on a police officer. Those seem to be the guys that enjoy the conflict and the confrontation with the people that they're arresting. I've, I have friends that are police officers. I know other police officers that can go a year or two and never arrest somebody for resisting arrest. And then others that seem every week they've got a new charge or every third person they arrest for some reason wants to fight them. And I have to think that's the sort of the oppositional behavior that Steve is talking about, but on the other side of the law. Yes. Steve, I'm, I'm curious with your law enforcement background and just yes. your experience. Do you know those guys that are carrying a gun and a badge? Uh, I know some right now. <laughs> Would you say they're highly punchable, Steve? Would you? <laughs> I think. Well, I, I, I'm just saying that uh, I, that's just not a good thing to 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 do. And I mean, there's just so many, you know, things that go beyond just the whole legal thing, you know, moral and everything. And it just doesn't benefit anybody. As a matter of fact, uh, the thing that it does for law enforcement officers is it tends to give uh, all of us a bad name. Now, I say yeah. all of us. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former, uh, uh, you know, deputy. But uh, basically, a lot of people had problems with uh, the police as a whole because of the actions of individual officers over the years. Right. And so, you know, that's what that's in the news now, right? Every day, yeah. every day you're you're looking and uh, the actions of the police officers, their response to uh, some event is what's being focused on, whether that response was appropriate, whether it was excessive, whether it was vicious and violent, um, appreciating that every day those guys go out there risking their own lives. At, at the same time, you know, the, um, uh, well, we've already talked about that. Don, you encountered a juror one time in a self-defense case who uh, was a, a proud gun owner, but he told you during voir dire, during the, the jury selection process, that he wasn't comfortable with himself carrying his gun in his car because he knew what a hothead temper that he would have <laughs> when he encountered people in road raid incidents. Do you remember that story? I, I do. That was an eye-opening moment for me because, as you said, we were in the middle of jury selection. I was representing a young man charged with murder. And our defense was self-defense. The deceased, the shooting victim was unarmed. So I was representing a man who shot and killed an unarmed man and claimed self-defense. 
So that was the context, and I was picking a jury looking for those people that, of course, believe, first of all, in the right to self-defense and then wanting to explore their understanding of firearms and, and also their personal views about how they conduct themselves. And I was talking to this, uh, this fellow who was saying all of the things that as a defense lawyer defending someone charged with murder and claiming self-defense wanted to hear. I was checking off the boxes as fast as I could until we started talking about carrying a gun in the car. In, in Florida, you can possess a firearm in a vehicle without actually having a concealed carry permit if you do it in a certain way. So lots and lots of people in Florida have guns in their cars that aren't necessarily permitted to carry them concealed outside. And we were talking about it and it was exactly as you said. I was talking about uh, uh, carrying a concealed firearm and it was so important to him to be able to defend himself and, and protect himself. But in a car, it was a completely different matter. He said, I just know myself too well. I know I can be a hothead, and I know that when tempers flare on the road, when some idiot cuts me off or challenges me in some way, I can't trust myself not to reach over and open the glove box and wave a gun around. So he said the way he solved that problem for him was he just didn't have a gun in the car. And I, I appreciated his candor. I thought that was an astounding perspective and insight, frankly, but it was kind of an odd story uh, um, and it, that connects in, in the way that you're talking about, right, to knowing yourself first. Yeah, and I want to ask Steve, you know, Steve, one time you, you mentioned to me that if you're, uh, if you're a responsible concealed carrier and you're trained and you're permitted, that, uh, that one of the best practices a lot of concealed carriers have is to, is to conceal carry almost all the time wherever it is legal and appropriate to do so. But I'm also wondering, is it, is it, you know, our, our friend, uh, Bob O'Connor, who is, uh, in law enforcement for many years, talks about the warrior mindset that when you carry, you have to be in this extra mindset that you are responsible for that weapon and that you have now the power to make life or death decisions and that you can't walk into a situation in public the same way an unarmed person can you you've got that responsibility on you is it ever okay for a concealed carrier like if i want to go to a barbecue and i plan on having a few uh extra cocktails that day and and i'm like you know what today's not a day for this i i, I don't want this responsibility today or this guy who decides, you know what, in the car, I'm just, I just don't trust myself, but I know at home or at my office, uh, I, I do. I'm just curious what your, your thought is on that. Uh, I completely agree. You know, uh, in most states, it is uh, illegal for a uh, concealed carrier uh, who lawfully possesses a permit to go into a bar that uh, most of the uh, revenue is generated from the sale of alcohol. Uh, there's a reason behind that, and I think that should be I, I think that should be respected. Uh, the fact that if I want to uh, go have a few drinks, and I know that one uh, that my 
affect not only the way I think, but also the way that the law looks at me afterwards. If I have to defend myself and everything I have done was indeed defensible, I think I've made it more difficult uh, for my lawyers to, you know, do the work they need to do. So I'm 100% in favor of, uh, of, your, of your, uh, your philosophy there. If I decide I have a day where I want to have bad judgment, I can just leave my gun at home that day. If you decide to have bad judgment that day, please do, Sean. <laughs> yeah, right. But we're all, and I guess to Don's <laughs> point, like we talked, no, we talked about people who have um, have impulse issues. But I, oh, yeah. I don't think there's a quantum switch someplace where someone's got it and someone doesn't. We all have our 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 points. We all have our uh, things that will provoke us. And if if I feel my children are threatened, I'm gonna. I start acting in a way that's different than I do when it's just me. And I find myself, I find myself surprising myself with how I act. And I, I think, you know, uh, we were talking about Tatiana Whitlock about you going with your gut, but if you've never been in a life or death situation, or you haven't been in the scenario that you haven't imagined, your gut can lead you in the wrong place. And that's where training and, this sort of uh, visualization and these conversations that we have come into play, what would the responsible thing be to do? And the real conundrum with this whole self-defense conversation is we're, we're preparing for a situation that we can't, you know, that we might potentially never possibly be able to imagine, right? These, these scenarios come together in such strange ways and I'm thinking about someone who who can have a short fuse sometime. We talked earlier about these thresholds and Steve about voice commands first and and then defensive display or all these or or less than lethal options, all these things that we have. Don, you and I have talked over and over again about the, the choice before the choice. That the you know, when you have to make that life or death decision, you don't have time to go through a whole litany of of conversations and legal considerations. You have to make a choice to save your life. But when we see Jirel Lee decide to go to his car and get his gun just in case, you know, this guy who's been harassing them comes around again, he's made a choice where he's opening himself up to a self-defense scenario. When Ted Wafer opens the door to Renisha McBride he opened up himself to the self-defense scenario. And, and so I think when it comes to knowing ourselves and how we're going to behave in situations that we've perhaps never been in in our lives, if we know in advance, it, it, these things tend to come, they can come quickly, but they come in a couple of steps. We have choices that we can make before the decision to pull the gun. And those choices what Don and a, a, a prosecutor in a court of law would call that a, a moment of reflection, right? Those are opportunities for us mm -hmm. to say, are, what are my motives for this? What are my other options? Steve, you talk to us all the time about time and space. Any, any choice that you can make that provides you time and space gives you more time to eliminate ambiguity, to explore, explore other options, and then if those options run out, Don, like we've talked about, you've given yourself 
a lot of reasonable steps that you took before using the lethal force that would bolster your claim to a law enforcement officer, a prosecutor, or a jury in a court of law? Well, you know, it has to be um, uh, based on training as well as visualization, personal reflection, experience, all of that. But it seems to me it still has to come back to training and the stuff that Steve shares with us, not just from his own personal experience and translating that into everyday lessons, but from the work he does helping to train people so that they know where those marks are. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm usually the guy who gets the call from the CCW safe member, if not directly. Um, usually before it's all done, I'm, I'm talking with that member, helping coordinate legal resources for them. We have a large membership that is even active law enforcement or retired law enforcement, certainly uh, retired military as well. And I can almost see those patterns that you're talking about, Sean. The guys that seem to be getting in trouble with brandishing, going to the gun too quickly, not fully understanding that there are decision points or other options, um, arming themselves with less lethal uh, weapons, uh, are the people um, that are pretty new to carrying handguns and uh, pretty new to the self-defense idea. The guys that are retired law enforcement, I, um, I, I don't see that with, you know, they, they know there's a continue, uh, what's the word, Steve? Is it continuum? Use of force Use continuum. Use of force continuum, is it? Uh, they know there, yes. yeah, they know there are steps along the way that you have other options if you know what to do and how to, um, uh, how to deploy those other things that can can defuse or de-escalate or give you the space to get away. And um, there's no substitute for training and experience, it seems. Yeah. Sean, getting back to something that you said earlier about, you know, having a few drinks and then saying, well, you know, that may impact the way that, you know, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that something may happen and may have maybe a different effect on myself emotionally. Uh, for those persons that would say, well, I'm always in control of my emotions, uh, I may say my retort to that may be, well, maybe that's true, but there's probably a very good reason that you do not uh, drink and drive. It's not necessarily that you're concerned about uh, your emotions being impacted by what's going on around you, but the fact that you realize that probably your reaction times uh, are impaired. Uh, there's a, probably a greater chance that you might overlook something that you wouldn't have before. Uh, your, your responses uh, would be delayed. And these also are good reasons for not carrying and uh, going out and uh, drinking, uh, especially in any way that's more than, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not one to just say, well, just have one and stop or something like that, although I think that would probably be a good idea. I would just not put myself in a position where I'm armed and I'm drinking to the point where I feel like my responses may be impaired in any way, uh, my emotions may be hijacked, or I may have a very difficult time uh, explaining what happened 
uh, after uh, I was forced to defend myself. So that's just my take on that. You know, you've told us before that if it's not safe to go there without a gun, it's not safe to go there with a gun. Correct. Right? And we looked at the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and you know, he had a, an obvious rifle that, in my opinion, uh, after the initial shooting, put a real big target on his back and caused him some some problems as he was trying to go for help. You know, uh, do you do you visualize circumstances where um, maybe it's safe to go there with a without a gun but it's not safe to go there with a gun and, and i'm thinking about <laughs> i'm thinking about a case that i did uh where a guy uh went to confront his uh girlfriend's other boyfriend and there was some property involved and you know he had a reason to confront this guy uh but he took a gun and surprise surprise he ended up shooting that guy uh after an argument went wonky and um my contention is he was putting himself into a situation where there is a potential conflict. Uh, he didn't have any reason to think that would result in a deadly conflict, but uh, it didn't look good that he went to his girlfriend's lover's house with a gun and they charged him with murder. I mean, uh, I'm just, <laughs> since we've talked for a while, I'm just throwing that one out there. Have you had any experience with that? Or can you see circumstances where, uh, bringing a gun into a situation increases your risk? Uh, I've not had any, you know, uh, experience with that, nor people uh, that I know, uh, but I am aware of that. And again, it's like, oh, try to avoid a situation where confrontation is going to be uh, potential. And, uh, you know, because very much so it could be the other person that decides to use a gun on you. And so I'm just trying to look at that from every angle and just do anything that I can to, you know, mitigate uh, risk. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I pound on very heavily uh, with family members and children and grandchildren now. And so uh, I, I think that's spot on. But definitely... Uh, you know, avoid those situations. And, uh, you know, you made a very good point there. Uh, bringing a gun uh, actually caused uh, the situation possibly to escalate or it gave you an option that you didn't have otherwise. So I can't argue with anything that you're saying there. Yeah, so it just comes down to uh, to judgment and uh, and training. But... You know, I, every time we have these conversations, Steve, I'm left uh, uh, with a stronger sense that the training is key for everyone who's taking on the responsibility of carrying a gun. Uh, training is going to give you more confidence. It's going to make you more effective. It's going to help you avoid uh, potential use of force incidents. And then if, God forbid, you find yourself in one, uh, you're going to be more confident that you're justified and and don i think when you know frankly w most of the cases that we've worked on are, are folks who didn't have real good training it seems like the people who have good training don't get in nearly as much trouble and they don't get in trouble that doesn't mean they don't get involved in those kinds of confrontations where they have to make decisions right. 
uh, to use force and how much force to use, but they have a, a better um, data bank to assess it and uh, a more reasoned response. Uh, when I tell you about people that get in trouble and these brandishing cases and these assault cases and those sorts of things, it doesn't mean that we don't have members who are involved in legitimate self-defense situations, including lethal right. ones. We've had a number of lethal self-defense cases where no one was arrested, no one was charged, no one was prosecuted because from the beginning it was clear that all of those boxes were checked, that the fear was uh, reasonable, that the threat was imminent and significant, and that the response was proportional, even if that response was the use of um, deadly force. That's actually good to hear because we talk about doom and gloom on this podcast all the time, and we talk about cases where things went wrong, but the truth is the stories where the defenders acted reasonably and appropriately rarely make headlines. And, and frankly, it's not the, the lessons aren't as clear in those cases because someone's used good judgment and, and, and there we are. Yeah, the, the police call those, I suppose, awful but lawful. You know, someone has died, um, it's a tragedy no matter what, but the conduct um, warranted the response and uh, the outcome, while sad, was not illegal and that the defender acted within the bounds of the law to save his life and uh, there was no basis for an arrest, no basis for a prosecution. Steve, do you have any final thoughts for our conversation today? Uh, yes, I do, and that is to uh, all of the, uh, the the listeners and readers that basically listen to us talk about uh, avoiding situations in which we're forced to use force, and if we are forced to use uh, force to indeed do it lawfully, does not mean that we would discourage anybody from doing exactly that if the situation uh, called for it. Uh, it's just there's no need for us right now to talk about the most effective ways to physically win a confrontation with another person, uh, lethal or otherwise. Uh, we understand that needs to be done. And uh, I and the, uh, the instructors that work with me and all the other instructors that I know that I would say, oh, those are good teachers. Uh, we spend the, the majority of our classes showing people how to effectively defend themselves, and uh, we encourage them to do so uh, if the circumstances are such. It, it's just that uh, basically we would like to see uh, our, our readers and our listeners avoid drama of any kind, and uh, more often than not, a lot of that comes from uh, making mistakes that don't actually uh, involve in them, you know, being in a lethal force situation. And sometimes when they do, uh, the mistakes they've made have basically just not only ruined their lives, but have just really had a negative impact on the lives of their families and friends. And so that, that's just the last thing I would like to say. Yeah. And Don, on that point too, I think it's worth saying that 
we are often, from a legal perspective, critical of the defenders that we look at, but that is only in the context of trying to draw lessons for concealed carriers. I, I think there's not a case that we've talked about that uh, you and I wouldn't have been happy to to work on and defend zealously in court. Is that fair? Well, yeah, what we've talked about, uh, an underlying theme is that there's two fights. There's the first one that you save your life and the second one that you save your freedom, that you're defending yourself in court. And first and foremost, you need to win that first fight. Uh, to the extent that you can win that first fight and also be cognizant of the risks in the second fight and minimize those, that you're sure there's lots of, lots of space in those decisions, that you've done everything you can to de-escalate, to avoid, to retreat tactically, that when it came time to defend yourself against that imminent attack of great bodily harm or death, and you did so decisively, that you did so within the bounds of the law. The best, uh, that's the best outcome, isn't it? You know, that, uh, the, the best fight to win, of course, is the one you never have, but if you have to, you need to win, and, but you need to win the second fight too, and you can do that by the training and the experience that allows you to understand where those legal boundaries are. All right, that's our podcast for today. Thanks again for listening through to the end. Next time, we're going to go back to basics. We're going to revisit one of our touchdown cases, this time with input from Steve Moses for his tactical point of view. Until then, guys, thanks for listening. Be smart. Stay safe. Take care. <laughs>